Support for industry focus comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, April 28th. Welcome to earnings season, folks. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com senior tech specialist, Evan New. Evan, it is the most wonderful time of the quarter. How's it going? Pretty good. Ready for the weekend. It's been a busy, uh, busy earnings week. Yeah, a lot to catch up on this week. Obviously, looking forward to next week as well with a lot of big tech companies, uh, namely Apple, reporting. But um, this most recent week, two big names, Amazon and Twitter, uh, both reported. We're going to go through their quarterly reports today. Evan, why don't we start out with the e-commerce giant? Sure. So, looking at Amazon's report here, uh, they put up $35.7 billion in revenue. A year ago, $29 billion. So that's a 23% increase year over year. It's pretty incredible given the size that they're working on with that denominator uh, for year over year changes. Uh, down to EPS, a dollar and forty-eight cents per share, um, based on past years, dollar and seven cents. Good for thirty-nine percent increase year over year. When it comes down to it, the company really crushed Wall Street's expectations and their own estimates. Yeah, I think it was a pretty strong quarter, and I mean, kind of the same thing we've been seeing play out over the past year plus, which is just Amazon Web Services continues to just really crush it. I mean, this this AWS segment. Is so important at this point financially because it's just so much more profitable than the e-commerce businesses, and I mean, plus on top of that, the operating margin for AWS is expanding, so they're starting to see some operating leverage kick in. Um, whereas the e- e-commerce businesses, both North America and international, saw operating margins decline a little bit. So I mean, AWS is now approaching 25% operating margins compared to like two to three percent in North American e-commerce and negative. In international, so I mean, it's and and, and that's only going to get more pronounced over time as AWS continues to grow, continues to scale, and just continues to be even more and more increasingly important financially speaking to their bottom line. Yeah, and just a couple numbers on the company's cloud computing division, AWS. Uh, sales were up forty three percent year over year. Uh, AWS accounted for ten percent of Amazon's total sales in the quarter, which was up from just under nine percent in the year ago period. And really, like you were saying, I mean, investors should be thrilled to see AWS continue to become a larger part of the company's top line because it is a much higher margin business than the company's e-commerce efforts. I mean, e-commerce is by nature razor thin, particularly the way that Amazon does it. And so, when you have kind of a cash cow business like AWS, uh, you know, to highlight the margin differential here, that segment produced more operating income than Amazon's North America division on roughly one sixth the sales. Um, which is insane. Yeah, I think I think it's funny because you know you've always Amazon has always been considered a tech company, right? But I would even argue that that's kind of only recently become a, an appropriate description because you know I mean e-commerce, yeah, this you're, you're doing online, and but you know the cost structure doesn't scale in the way that most tech companies do scale. There's a lot of tech companies, you know, that's one of the big advantages for a lot of tech companies um, is that they can really, you know, scale up and to these really high levels and, you know, profits just start expanding. But when you have e-commerce, it's just not that way because the infrastructure investments are massive. The margins are, like you mentioned, very small to begin with. So it, I think, you know, when, when they jumped into this AWS thing a few years ago, 
you know, I mean, obviously cloud infrastructure is pure tech and it's also very scalable, which is also just another thing that's common in tech. So I just think it's interesting how historically they've always been considered a tech company when their operations have been less kind of tech focused in, in terms, especially in terms of cost structure uh, compared to this new cloud businesses, which is just exploding and blowing up everywhere. And and that cloud business has really allowed them to invest in other parts of the business, right? I mean, we mentioned the losses that are going on in the international side right now. Uh, that segment posted 16% year-over-year growth. It's still operating at a loss. And and the reason for that is they're sinking a ton of money into long-term investments on that side. You know, you can think about what they're doing with e-commerce and building out warehouses, that fulfillment infrastructure. You know, they're they're investing in content and having original programming that's bespoke to all of the markets that they're entering. Uh, you know, launching Prime in India, all these different things that are kind of long-term plays. That's all enabled by the fact that AWS is creating a ton of money for them. Definitely, and, and you know, speaking of India, I think that was a big contributor. I mean, international operating margin um, declined from negative one percent to like negative four percent. So, I mean, you can see losses widening on the international side. And in the in the earnings release, they talked a lot about India. Like they mentioned India many many times. They mentioned like they're making localized content, the TV shows for the Indian market. They, I think they've invested at this point somewhere of somewhere in the neighborhood of five billion dollars in infrastructure in India. And Bezos, Jeff Bezos, even said like it's still quote day one for e-commerce in India. So clearly, the Indian market is he you know, Amazon sees a lot of potential in the Indian market, and they're you know that's where they're directing a lot of their investments. But it, it, they did they did talk about it an awful lot in the press release, so I mean, you can t- you can certainly see that it's at the top of their mind. Yeah, and you know we talked about that that day one, right? And that was something that also came up in Jeff Bezos's annual letter to shareholders. If, if any fools haven't read it, highly recommend it. It's great insight into kind of the leadership of Amazon and how the company's thinking about things, and you see a lot of that reflected in how they're handling that international segment. Um, kind of pulling back and looking broadly at the company. And looking for investor takeaways here, I think that you have to just kind of chalk this up to really a killer quarter from a great company. Uh, a lot of stuff that we expected, you know, AWS. It's great to see it continuing to grow, becoming a more important part of the business. Uh, we love that. But um, what we're seeing on the international side, yes, would it be nice if it wasn't operating at a loss? Yeah, but um, the long-term investments are, are probably going to bear fruit for the company, you know, uh, in the future. Uh, and anything else on Amazon for you, Evan? I, I just remember this. A few years back, I was having a conversation with Eric Bleeker. You know, he used to be a general manager at Fullacom, and you know, has moved to a different part of the company. But Bleeker was telling me, you know, we were having this conversation a couple of years ago, and he was saying, you know, might be worth investing in Amazon purely just for AWS. And, and this was at a time when AWS was much smaller, and Amazon wasn't even disclosing their results yet, so it was kind of hard to like know how important it was. But you know, I kind of wish I had taken him up on that because certainly, I mean, stocks, you know, more than doubled. Since that time, and and largely driven by AWS, so I mean it is pretty pretty breathtaking how AWS has become so fundamental to the investing case, and you know which you know we, it would have been hard to predict like five years ago. Yeah, but it's it, it's so important now. I mentioned Jeff Bezos's annual letter before, and actually we had a writer uh, Seth McNew look at Jeff Bezos's annual letter from ten years ago, and he talks about AWS. And you know, so so I mentioned kind of the importance of reading these letters as you know, getting a lens into how management is thinking and what eventually might become very important parts of the business and and why they're kind of funneling money into these different projects. And I think that is an example where Bezos had the vision 
you know, a long time ago that this was going to be super important for Amazon. Uh, Eric Bleeker caught on at some point too, um, but it wound up being huge for investors, huge for the company, and it's really fueled a lot of the growth that they're looking for in other segments. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could invest in just the AWS business. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love those margins. Um, well, Evan, we're going to run through the quarterly numbers for Twitter in the second half of the show. Before we get over to that, though, uh, just wanted to give our listeners a little heads up that support for industry focus comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust who has your best interest in mind. With Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste your time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. So skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, and MLS at consumeraccess.org, number 3030. So, Evan, back to the earnings action. Flipping from a company that has been on fire for years uh, in a positive way to maybe a company that has been on fire uh, in, in more of a negative sense, uh, let's talk a little bit about Twitter and their most recent report. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, revenue came in at just under $550 million, which beat expectations. But even with that beat, the top line was still down from nearly $600 million that the company brought in uh, in the first quarter a year ago. Looking over at the bottom line, non-GAAP EPS came in at $0.11. Cents. Of course, if you're looking at the generally accepted accounting principle side of the financials, the company lost $0.09 cents per share. I think, in some ways, this is the quarter that des- uh, that Twitter really desperately needed. I mean, it was the first set of good news for the company in a while. They, they had the beat uh, on some financial numbers, and they also had some core business numbers that looked pretty rosy. The stock's up over 10% since the report. I think, obviously, a lot of people liked what they saw. Looking at the results, Evan, what stuck out to you? I think the key theme for this quarter was cost-cutting, which really helps profitability. Um, Not that they're profitable on a gap basis, but just kind of in general, it certainly helps their financial position. If you remember, they announced in late 2016 that they're restructuring and laying off 9% of their staff. which you know, and certainly that's a, that's a big driver of the, these big cost reductions. Uh, so, for example, revenue is down eight percent, but total costs were down ten percent. So, you know, you can see the, you know, that translates into a little bit of margin expansion. It, which is funny; it's almost like reverse operating leverage, which you can get margins to expand while revenue is going down. <laughs> but you know, I think I think it's just an interesting thing because they they've you know. This, so this is kind of an argument I've been making recently, which is you know it, before Q1 this quarter. Twitter, I think, has been kind of operating unsustainably because you know they have consistently large net losses, deteriorating operating metrics, most notably around users. But meanwhile, revenue has been growing for most of the time, so it makes it more acceptable. Um, but if you have net losses, declining sales, and poor operating metrics, that's just a really bad recipe. Um, so this quarter being the first ever revenue decline, but they, they, you know the silver lining being that they've they they helped their profitability a little bit, so I mean I think of it kind of like an inflection point since you know sales went down, but this is their highest EBITDA margin they've ever posted. So I think that in a way Twitter has to kind of accept what it is and more importantly what it isn't. Like it's definitely carved out a place for itself at the intersection of you know social media news, microblogging, and kind of interacting with 
people or public figures that you might not know personally. But there are kind of limits to how far that usage can take Twitter in that role. And I think kind of frankly over-investing in future growth could be a waste of money because I think the platform does lack some mainstream appeal, which is what we've seen manifest itself over the years in terms of poor user growth, which I mean this quarter was, was the strongest user growth they've had in two years. So you know there are things that are turning up and engagement improving. I mean – you know they're you know they're stabilizing their financials and right sizing the cost structure and you know I think they're being a little bit more surgically you know they're more surgically investing in product improvements and you know and obviously the goal of that is to improve you know user engagement and growth but I think that you know what they're doing really bodes well in terms of financial sustainability because they can they can support themselves I mean you know they brought in 550 million in sale I mean you can you can stay the business on that if you're bringing in that much money each quarter, so long as you're, you're you have some cost discipline, you're not over investing and kind of chasing things that aren't ever going to materialize. So I do think this is an important quarter for them. Yeah, and looking beyond just those financial numbers, you mentioned what, what's going on with users. So they are now at 328 million monthly active users worldwide, which is up nine million sequentially, and. I mean that's really great to see. You know, we've we've been looking at this kind of stagnating user growth for quite some time, so it's great to see them notch what, you know, what kind of amounts to a meaningful bump here. It's I think it's the strongest sequential addition that they've had in 2 years. Um, you know, back when they reported I think something like 14 million uh in Q1 2015. Um what do you think is really pushing those gains, Evan? Cuz I mean, they've been doing so much on the platform to to kind of improve engagement and get people logging in more often and engaging with the platform more. I mean, they've been doing a huge push with live streaming and and getting some programming there. They've been experimenting with push notifications. They've been rethinking the company's timeline approach rather than having it be uh, just sequential and and based on, you know, recency. They've tried to curate content a little bit more. You think there's any one thing that's really getting people more engaged? I think it's a combination. I mean, they mentioned on the call a couple of factors. I mean, one is in the U.S. particularly, there's been a, a big rise in political engagement, so people following and interacting with political kind of related content. Um, you know, which makes sense given, you know, the current political climate with, you know, it's just a kind of crazy climate. So people are getting more engaged, but you know, the hard part is that it doesn't seem like that's translating into necessarily ad sales, which is, you know, the, the next step of that equation. And like you mentioned, the, the, the algorithmic curation, which is funny because, you know, they announced that a year ago in Twitter users freaked out and they're like, oh, you're just trying to become Facebook. Yeah, that was not a popular decision when they decided to do that. Yeah, they got so much backlash, which I don't understand why, you know, these Twitter, these really enthusiastic users were so upset about this. (laughs) Because, I mean, yeah, compared to just a strictly unfiltered reverse chronological feed, which is hard to use because unless you're literally constantly on there and you will see everything in real time, which no one does that. Well, and, and also, and also just mean, because of Twitter's platform, there's so much noise, right? And so, so having a reverse chronological feed sets you up to look through a lot of stuff that you just don't want to see. Exactly. And I mean, think about it fundamentally. I mean, if the point of having algorithmic curation is to unearth content and tweets that are more relevant to you as a user based on, you know, your behavior and data around how you, what you interact with. So, I mean, shouldn't any social media user of any platform want more relevant content? I mean, I just don't understand how that is some like terrible thing to some of the people that really spoke out against this. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's very, very likely it's just like a very vocal minority that was, 
you know making a big fuss about this <laughs> whereas obviously it has helped right i mean more more relevant tweets just in, helps engagement i mean you don't have to waste as much of your time trying to find information or content that you're looking for if twitter is trying to help you with that process and showing information that you might be interested in and, and they've you know introduced a lot of features that are kind of in that with that idea in mind and it's definitely helping like clearly so well and, and one of the one that, of the numbers that we can look at for that is I mean, they don't break it out specifically for us but we can kind of glean it from growth rates is how daily active users compare to monthly active users right uh, i know this is something that you've written about a little bit on fool.com but seeing daily actives rise i think they were 14 percent year over year while monthly actives were up seven percent year over year that says that people are generally coming back to the platform more you know even as monthlies are growing Right, exactly, and and yeah, I mean, and this is the fourth or fifth quarter of DAU daily active user growth accelerating. So I mean, it's just the growth rate has been trending higher over the past year or so. Um, and, you know, that that does speak. And again, and over the past year is when they've been implementing these these product changes, particularly with the algorithmic curation. And I mean, I don't know if they're making much progress on the whole abuse side of it because that's always been a big problem. And they say that they're doing. I mean, they always say that they're doing stuff to help, and they always say they're making progress. But and there's no real good way to to measure this. I mean, it's not like there's metrics around abuse, right? <laughs> At least not. You know, maybe internally they have some metrics that they follow, but as far as public investors go, it's not like we can look at some hard number and say, "Oh, abuse is going down." Like, <laughs> so you just kind of have to take their word for it, but. Their word on on this topic doesn't really have a lot of weight because they have this long history of being way too passive when it comes to abuse and harassment on their platform. So, I mean, they're saying that all you know, they said that all that making progress there has also helped engagement. But again, I, I think it's probably more about the other factors because I don't really believe I don't give them too much credit on actually fighting abuse because they seem they seem a little too complacent there. But right. Uh, beyond the the user side, kind of switching over to the ad side of their business, I think on first glance, one of the things that was kind of like a yikes moment in the results was that even with all these positive trends in you know more daily actives outstripping the monthly active growth and general positive growth trends in monthly actives, uh, cost per ad engagement was down sixty percent year over year, and that's on the back of a fifty percent decline a year ago. And generally in the past, the company has been able to make up for those declines. Based on the volume of ad engagements, and so you know, even with ad engagements up 140 percent year over year in this most recent quarter, they still posted the revenue decline because that because that price is just coming down and down. And um, I, this is something that you have to be a little concerned about, right? I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, like the user growth is only so good uh, as long as they can monetize those users. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's exactly the the challenge that they face now is that right now they're you know, so Jack Dorsey certainly has always been. More kind of the product-focused kind of CEO, and you know, yeah, the, the product provers are helping the users' numbers, but you know, as far as financials go, I mean, so so for example, they mentioned that engagement had the biggest gains in the U.S. in part because of the U.S. political stuff we mentioned. So they're seeing the biggest gains in engagement in the U.S., but ad revenue declined the most in the U.S. So there's a big disconnect there with you know these things. These things are diverging, like you. You know, growth is down, engagement's up. Like, how do you reconcile those two things? And that's going to be, I mean, certainly that's kind of like what they're trying to focus on next is, you know, once we stabilize the user number, then we focus on the ads. Um, and, you know, they're, they're kind of trying to streamline their, their ad products because I think it, they've had a little bit too much going on. So 
you know, they're trying to be more efficient and targeted with how they're approaching the ad business. So it, it is definitely what, what they need to hit next. Um, because yeah, I mean, right now th- there's a big discrepancy with engagement and ad sales. So whether or not they can do that, I mean, that's a pretty big open, open-ended question in terms of, you know, results going forward. And I think to a certain extent, that's just the dynamics of the ad business. Uh, you know, so in the quarterly call, CFO Anthony Noto tried to kind of explain what was going on here by saying, current revenue trends that we're reporting reflect budget decisions based on trends in audience and pricing of six to 12 months ago, when we were not seeing significant acceleration in user growth. And, and really, what he's getting at here is ad budgets, they're planned out. And so, any increase in ad spend or anything that would impact you know, the rates that people are paying on Twitter or the number of impressions, anything like that, uh, is going to be a reflection of what user growth looks like, uh, you know, six months prior, basically. And uh, you know, in in the company's PR and in, in their guidance, they said, you know, Twitter continues to expect advertising revenue, uh, the growth there, to continue to meaningfully lag that of audience growth in 2017, including into the second quarter. And so, if you're looking for a period where we might start to see these metrics sync up a little bit more and and start seeing. Um, you know what people are paying for ads on Twitter reflect what's going on with the audience growth that they're experiencing. It probably happens sometime in the fall of 2017. Um, so it, that, that's kind of like the mark your calendar period for investors if you're watching these two metrics. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, it's yeah, you know, and yeah, there's a little bit of a lag time there, but yeah, I mean, hopefully they can actually start executing better on the on the ad side. I mean. But even beyond that, I think the again, like the cost bit is is pretty important. I mean, I think they've been a little too generous with you know things like stock based compensation, for example, and they're expecting stock based compensation in 2017 to be down about 20 to 25 percent versus 2016 levels, which I think is an encouraging sign because that's certainly one of their largest expenses. I mean, it's a non cash expense, but it's still one of the biggest expenses on a gas on a gap basis, and they're still trying to hit gap profitability. I mean, they're they're still putting non-gap um, net income, but of course, investors prefer gap profits. So, Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, while they work on, I mean, they, they got a lot of pieces of the puzzle to kind of work on at the same time. I mean, and they're making progress on the user side and the product side, still need to be doing, and on the cost side, but they do need to be doing better on the ad side, on the revenue side. So, we talked about some of the progress we're seeing here. Evan, are you buying into Twitter's turnaround story? A lot of the numbers here seem to be moving in the right direction, but but I also see a lot of reasons for pause. Yeah, I'm I'm not really interested in Twitter as an investment. I mean, I do think that they can grow, you know, become a sustainable business with a place in the world and you know have provide the service that provides value to people. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good investment for public shareholders. I mean, you can have a, a solid company that can, you know, that can operate and be sustainable and also still underperform the broader market. I mean, those two things are certainly quite common and not mutually exclusive. So I think that Twitter is on its path to becoming more of a, a kind of long-term company in terms of how it's it's being run and just you know, holding down its place that it's carved out for itself. But I don't think it's going to be – I mean, yeah, and yeah, while these a lot of metrics are, are improving and heading in the right direction, I, I mean, it's just one quarter, <laughs> right? Right. And I, I don't think that I still don't think Twitter is going to be an outperforming investment. In mm-hmm. which case, I'm not interested. I, I'm kind of thinking along the same lines here. For me, I mean, this is a company that has been poorly managed for such a long time. There's been that revolving door of CEOs. They've gone through so many different platform identity crises. Uh, 
there was a period like what half a year ago, I think, where management was looking for a buyer for the business. And and so given all of that dysfunction, I think I need to see more before I'm really thinking about this and this as a serious investment opportunity at all. Um, you know, it's great to see some of these metrics trending the right way. Um, but I also really want to see if they can continue to sustain this user growth. You know, we talked about how to a certain extent, um, you know, the, the current political environment is something that is helping out the business a ton. You know, is that going to be short lived? Is that going to be long lived? Uh, will major changes to the platform continue to, uh, you know, fuel what they're seeing on the user side? Uh, there are a lot of questions, and and I need some kind of more solid answers and some solid metrics to hang my hat on before I even really give them a serious look. All right, and something you mentioned just a minute ago in terms of like the changing product direction, the revolving door CEOs. I think that if you haven't already, uh, and any listeners also, um, you should check out the Hatching Twitter book. Um, it's written by Nick Bilton. It came out a couple of years ago, I think in 2013, 2014. So it's not like a new book, but it, it gives a really good account of. Twitter's founding in the early days and how much infighting and backstabbing and betrayal there was <laughs> in those early days. And I think that gives, you know, and you know, between Jack Dorsey and Evan Williams, who you know, are two of the co-founders that just had this constant power struggle. But to your, to, to, to your point, which is they each had a different vision for the product. So I think that if you, if you read the story and it really gives you some context into why Twitter has always seem to lack direction in in terms of uh, as a company and a product and uh, you know it's just, it's just really useful particularly for investors to to get that context of the culture that Twitter grew up in which kind of explains why it's still been so hard for them to kind of figure out exactly where they fit in the world uh, because of these kind of conflicting visions about the product very early on that you know I mean I don't know if those types of culture concerns persist to this day, but okay, it's just a really interesting story and I think some very useful context. So I, I'd highly recommend anyone who's interested in Twitter as a company stock or service to just go read the book. It's a pretty good book. It's always nice to send the listeners home with some homework. Uh, so, so that so that is that is the book on Twitter. You said that was Hatching Twitter? Yeah, Hatching Twitter. It's written by Nick Bilton, who uh, was a really good, um, prominent New York Times journalist. Now writes for Vanity Fair, but he, he, you know, he, he did a really good job, and he had good access too. So he had access to all the co-founders. So really, really good firsthand accounts of how everything went down, and a lot of uh, a lot of betrayal and power grabbing. So, so for more color on what we were talking about today, listeners, check out Hatching Twitter, and I would also highly, highly, highly recommend checking out uh, Jeff Bezos's annual letter to shareholders if you haven't already. Um, Awesome discussion. Evan, anything else before I let you go? No, I think we covered it all. All right. Well, we'll definitely be back next week to talk some major tech earnings. Um, but until then, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com. You can always tweet us at MF Industry Focus too. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.